This is Boardwalk Talk, a podcast of interviews with various people in Toronto's beach neighborhood who are doing important work and have intriguing spiritual journeys to share. My name is Jeff Nowers, a priest at St. Aidan's Anglican Church in the beach. Welcome to the conversation. Michael Van Dusen is a longtime beach resident, a runner, activist, and he's a parish deacon at St. Aidan's Church. Recently, we sat down to talk about his life and work. We covered a lot of ground, including the spirituality of running and the politics of the beach community. The recording, unfortunately, may seem a bit hollow, and that's because we had to share the same microphone. Michael Van Dusen is an ordained parish deacon. And I began by asking him exactly what that means. So there's several ways of thinking about it. I mean, there's the liturgical way, uh, there's a lot of history to it, but I think of it personally as being commissioned by the parish to do the things that the parish values. And let me give you a couple examples. I think a lot of people, uh, value and want to take care of, uh, of people such as uh, people at the safe injection site. But not everyone's comfortable going down there. Uh, not everyone has the transportation or the freedom of time to go down there. So I'm commissioned to do this on their behalf. And the parish has been very generous over the course of the past two years in terms of donating drink boxes and granola bars, uh, literally thousands of both. And so just about every week I go down to the safe injection site at the corner of Jarvis and Queen. Occasionally I take down parishioners who want to see what the place is like and who may not go there themselves, don't even, may, may not even know where it is. It's just a, a door in the side of the wall. And so they come with me. In other situations I've been uh, working it out of the cold. And I know that that's something that the parish also values. I've been doing it since the, since out of the cold began. And as a retired person, I have the opportunity uh, and the time available to go every Monday and be there and greet them. And now, out of the, out of the cold, for those who I may not even know what that is, uh, can you can you describe what that is? When did it when did it come into existence? Oh, out of the cold, it's been going for about 25 or so years, and maybe longer. It's a shelter program, particularly in winter time. So it runs in our case from November to the end of April, and it was created literally because a fellow froze to, uh, froze to death on a street. Uh, near a local high school, and so a nun uh, got together with people at St. Michael's and uh, persuaded them to uh, open space uh, one day a week and uh, to put up people. 
and the various churches and synagogues take turns once a week putting up people overnight, providing them with meals, providing them with breakfast the next morning and seeing them on the way. So uh, literally every night of the week from uh, early November to the end of April is uh, there is space available for people who would otherwise be sleeping outside. Would you say that uh, most of your work as a, as a deacon is, is outside the walls of the, of the church building? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, I think of the work as being uh, work in prison ministry. Um, so I work with the Mennonite Circles of Support and Accountability. So we work with people who come out of prison, who have uh, records, uh, often long records of uh, particularly sex offense. And so I work in particular with uh, uh, one person who's called a core member of our circle of support and accountability. And I've been working with him since he got out of prison. And uh, he was in for uh, almost the maximum sentence of uh, 30 years. So he, he had a hard time readjusting. What was the crime? Pardon? What was the crime? Oh, pedophilia. He had, uh, he had offended multiple people. Uh, multiple children. So um, these people have a very difficult time reintegrating into the community um, and they come out with many restrictions as you can imagine uh, and it's very difficult for them to navigate uh, in society and meet all the conditions of their restrictions. Um, so often a group uh, like this will get together and help help them keep from reoffending, uh, but also keep from breaking the rules that they have to abide by. And this particular person's case, he didn't reoffend in terms of sex offenses, but he broke some of the rules on several occasions and, uh, and was reincarcerated for a period of six years. Uh, so it's, it's, it's difficult for them. And so we try and help them, but we also help society by uh, keeping the people from reoffending, keeping them safe. Your, your work is very raw and, and on the edge. But by the same token, I think that uh, the people in this community value that that work is being done on their behalf, uh, in the spirit of love and in the spirit of the Beatitudes, these people are blessed. They are created by God for God's own purpose. We don't understand what it is. Uh, let me tell you the, the one story, the one opportunity that I've seen. This, this particular guy has, uh, is pretty difficult uh, on many accounts. And, uh, gee, we... Uh, I was driving around with him. He was trying to renew his license, and uh, uh, we had we had a tough conversation. And uh, when we got out of the car, he looked at me and uh, as he was getting out, and he said, "God bless you." And you know, you could have knocked me over. Uh, something in our exchange and in the candor of our conversations struck him as uh, being 
holy. And he responded in a way that uh, I hadn't heard him ever talk like in a period of six months uh, in knowing him previously. You didn't always do this kind of work. This is, this is something that, that you've come across uh, later, later in your life. And uh, um, not that late, but uh, <laughs> later in your life. Um, is it something that you um, developed an interest in or, or became convicted about um, suddenly? Uh, was, this, was this sort of a conscience that you always uh, had uh, along, along with you? I think it was something that I had intellectually, uh, but by that I also mean there was a, it was abstracted. I, I valued the fact that some people would uh, take care of the uh, take care of people who lived on the margins and people who were difficult. I would say that the uh, turning around point came when I was studying scripture at Wycliffe uh, in the early 2000s, and I can't put my finger on a particular day or time, but I know while I was studying Old Testament and early New Testament, my um, uh, I came to a realization that, for me anyway, scripture was going to be uh, more than an academic study, but that it was going to be a guideline for my personal life, and that Jesus meant it when he talked about uh, caring for people and being the servant of all. And uh, we had a very uh, interesting and dynamic group of youth at the time here at the church and they wanted to do something they wanted to go somewhere to help others um, previously a group of the youth had gone out with the Abishnabi uh, street patrol uh, and delivered uh, hot drinks and uh, blankets to people living on the street uh, but uh, I, made, uh, I made the acquaintance with uh, the person who ran the program, uh, the breakfast program at St. Stephen in the Fields in Kensington Market. And so a group of the uh, youth... That's where you and I first met. That's right. Yep. Uh, a group of the youth came down with me uh, to uh, work there and to serve breakfast and clean up. And um, I'm still doing it. I go down virtually every week, uh, every week that I'm here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's only to deliver bread. Um, the local Cobbs uh, gives me six loaves of bread every week. And I always deliver that. And sometimes if I'm on for the 8.30 service, I leave there about 10 to 7 and come back and clean up and come down here. But uh, yeah. Uh, and. Again, I speak about relationship. Uh, I, we used to we used to have a bouncer there. I don't know if uh, there was one still there when you when you were there, but uh, we used to. Yeah, yeah, I think there was. We used yeah. to have to throw people out. Yeah. And uh, over the course, of, uh, he quit, and over the course of time, um, we didn't replace him. But what uh, what? occurred was that we developed relationships with the people. So I know about 85 or 90 percent of the people who come in on any, on any week uh, by sight and about half of the people by name. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and can can talk with them and converse with them. And you know, we haven't had issues where we've had to throw people out in years. So, um, so I find it I find it very rewarding. I, there are stories from that experience that I've used here in sermons and. Uh, when I talk with people on the Ignatian Spirituality Retreats, which is another project that I work on. Um, just as an aside, that's, uh, that's a program that uh, works with people who are in recovery from addictions, uh, whether it's drugs or alcohol. Uh, they've typically been clean or sober for two months or more. They're living in a recovery house and uh, Many of them have come through AA, which uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, which uh, has uh, uh, an orientation towards a higher power. Uh, AA starts with the premise that they can't control their drinking or their drug taking on their own and they need the support of a higher power. But frequently, there is more emphasis on the control of drinking than on the higher power. So this program works to support that sense of of God in the person, in their spirituality, and provide that as a support. So we take people who are in recovery to away for a retreat, and we talk uh, about uh, their life and the ways in which God would influence them. Hmm. Hmm. You uh, became a deacon, you were ordained a deacon what year? Uh, two years ago, in 2017, okay. in May. So this is, this is a recent thing? Oh, yeah. Um, and you've been part of St. Aidan's for how long? Oh, roughly 30 years. I, uh, I started coming here when I uh, met my now wife, uh, uh, what, what was it like? Do you remember the very first Sunday morning that you walked into a liturgy here? Uh, yeah, I I do, and I felt very comfortable about it. Uh, I was raised Roman Catholic. I hadn't been to church in many years. I felt that there was an absence, uh, and. I felt that I was reconnecting with something that was essential in my life when I came back to St. Aidan's. The, uh, the, the difference in the, the differences in the theology are not what I consider to be material. We both say the same creeds, uh, Roman Catholics uh, and Anglicans. The differences tend to be around the periphery. Mary priest, celibacy, things like that. The Pope. Yeah. 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 But uh, those aren't. Uh, uh, but I found that uh, coming to Saint Aidan's was uh, very much like coming home in a spiritual sense. So did you? Was it uh, at that time? As you say, you hadn't been to church in quite a while, and was it kind of like pulling teeth to get you to to come here? Um, not at all. It, uh, it was something that we, we did every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, I mean, the, the, the twists and turns become funny. I was working at Hewlett Packard at the time, and I found out that the, neither the priest nor the office had a computer, and I found that incredible. And so uh, I donated a computer to the church. 
And um, I think for that, for that offense, I got on the list of people who would be tapped to be uh, a deputy warden, uh, which I was elected to in uh, about two years. And I was told that there's nothing to it. You just come to a meeting every other month for about two hours and that's it. You give your advice. Uh, it wasn't quite that way, but uh, that's how it was sold to me. <laughs> Wait, so how far along between that point, I guess this is, this is about 1989 when you, yeah. when, you, when you first became part of this community? Yes, that's right. And, uh, so how far, how far along did you get to the point where you realized, you know what? I, I sense something something deeper for myself here. I sense that I, I can be a, a parish deacon. When, when, did, when did all that start start happening? Um, so Mark Andrews was the priest here in the mid-1990s. And uh, he had at first asked me to be a lay assistant. Um, uh, so I spoke with the family and said, yes, I'd do that. Uh, so I was a lay assistant, and at the time we used to have Sunday evening services, and he had the lay assistants preach. Uh, so I preached and preached badly, and I knew it. And I, uh, uh, I, I think the theme was good. I remember my first sermon. I preached on Francis Thompson's poem, "The Hound of Heaven," and. Uh, uh, Anyway, I came out of that experience saying, well, I think I should know more about Scripture. And uh, through Beth Manson, who is now Canon Beth Manson, uh, uh, she was a lay assistant here at the same time. She was starting to do her courses at Wycliffe and said, you know, you can do courses part-time. So uh, as much out of academic interest as anything else, I started in 2002 to take courses, uh, just one course a term in Old Testament uh, for two terms and then uh, two terms of New Testament. And it was during that period of time that I came to, uh, to develop more of the, more of the sense of outreach and the sense of commitment to the community. Uh, it wasn't until after I had done a prayer course also at, uh, through Wycliffe uh, and up at the convent of Sisters of uh, St. John that uh, I spoke with Sister Constance Joanna who was leading the course and she uh, just suggested to me that I might consider becoming a deacon and uh, uh, I spoke with Bishop Patrick Yu who said yes, I want you to speak to the coordinator of deacons. So this is about 2003 or 2004, but not yet, and, which was a kind of funny answer. And uh, so... Yeah, that is, a, that, is a, and, that is a strange response. So I went and spoke with the coordinator of deacons, and he said, oh, so you're getting a new priest. And I said, uh, not that I'm aware of, but uh, two months later, our priest, Stephen Kierkegaard, at the time left. And we went through a period of a whole lot of interim priests, uh, a period of about five years. And by that time I was a warden, and wardens can't nominate themselves to become deacons, so I didn't even think of raising it. 
when Lucy Reed arrived, she'd been here about a year or maybe two, when somebody mentioned that I had at one time expressed an interest in becoming a deacon, and she stopped me one afternoon or one evening after a meeting and said, I heard this. And uh, I said, oh yeah, but that was 10 years ago. And she said, I think you should consider it again. So I used Lent um, about five years ago just to consider uh, whether in fact I felt I was called and uh, then said, yeah, okay, uh, let's start the process. So the, the wardens at the time uh, wrote a letter to the bishop and asked to commence the process and that's how it got going. It took a period of 14 years between my first uh, meeting with uh, Patrick Yu and the actual ordination. I didn't think that the church should rush it, and neither did they apparently. <laughs> now when you went off to the, U of, to the University of Toronto, to Wycliffe College, to, to, study, to study Bible and theology, that, that's, that was not your first dance with with the Bible and, and with theology. You were in seminary as a young man. Uh, go back to your Catholic youth uh, thinking about the priesthood. That's right. So, uh, what, so you've, you've come a long way. Uh, you've, you've, what, what happened with that? Uh, you're obviously not a Catholic priest. Uh, no, no. Yeah, it was, uh, was pre-Vatican II. It was yeah. in the days when uh, everything was in Latin. I can still remember many of the songs and many of the phrases in Latin and pray the Our Father in it. Um, the, uh, I think it was very much a cultural thing. I grew up in an Irish Roman Catholic family, despite the name. Uh, my mother was Kathleen Quinlan and a uh, very strong um, uh, Roman Catholic uh, faith. My parents were both active in the uh, in the church, much beyond the um, just beyond Sunday worship. So, uh, the priest was somebody we admired and looked up to. It was, uh, it was from a cultural perspective, a very natural, natural thing. Um, uh, minor seminaries grew up in the early turn of the 19th and 20th centuries because uh, uh, children were only required to go to school to grade 8. And uh, for many people uh, who may have had a vocation, um, there was not a requirement to go to high school. So the seminaries were set up at that time. So I went into, I completed high school, two years of college, and then a year of novitiate. Uh, and I left six weeks before my vows asking for more time. I was told that I could go back at any time, but that I was encouraged to, uh, complete a university degree. Um, I left and about uh, within a couple of years I was married and then divorced. It was uh, nasty, brutish and short. Um, and uh, But in those days in the Roman Catholic Church uh, you could not uh, the divorce wasn't recognized so I was forced into a situation where uh, I would uh, not, uh, not be able to have female companionship uh, if I was to remain a Roman Catholic, according to those rules, or 
as I wished. I was going to have companionship, but I wasn't going to have the church. So it was, uh, it was an either-or situation. Do you, do you still, to this day, would you, would you consider yourself a Catholic? Yeah, very much in the sense of the creed. Um, yeah. Not a Roman Catholic, but a, but a, but a Catholic. Yes. Yeah. Not, a, not a Roman Catholic, that's correct. Yeah. I do, I spend an awful lot of time with, uh, with my Jesuit friends, um, uh, as well as a Mennonite who was uh, one of the readers at my ordination. The other person who read at my ordination was a Jesuit who was going to be ordained a Roman Catholic priest in a couple of months. So, yeah, I go back and forth. When I go to Roman Catholic services, um, whether it was the ordination of some other friends or when I was on the canoe pilgrimage and I attended uh, their church services, I always received communion uh, with them and they did not object to me doing so. Mm -hmm. So Now you, uh, you've lived in the beach neighborhood of Toronto a long, a long time. Yeah, about correct? 32, 33 years. I joke that my wife was geographically desirable. <laughs> <laughs> is this uh, this is this is home? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I love the boardwalk. I love all the access to the lake. Uh, how how have the, if, when you think of Queen Street, the, the eastern strip of Queen Street, how, how have things changed over the last thirty years? Um, gee. I, it, let me rephrase the question because I think of it in different uh, in different ways. I think of different anchor spots in the beach. So uh, for me, uh, the remarkable bean and its coffee is one of the anchor spots. I've spent uh, so much time there and had so many meetings there that it really becomes an adjunct of the church. <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, it's a very familiar place. The people there are generous. Uh, I've written testimonials for their websites and, uh, and I've had them cater my various parties. Uh, lots of coffee, as you can imagine. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's one aspect of it. I think uh, Ed's Ice Cream is another, uh, is another spot. I, uh, I often introduce people, uh, for instance, when Lucy first came here, we had coffee at Ed's and then uh, we had coffee, I mean, at the Remarkable Bean and then we walked down to the Belgian chocolate shop and uh, we got some chocolate. I just thought that it was important that she know those places. Cerrone's <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, vegetable market was another anchor. Joe Cerrone was uh, a wonderful person. Uh, he was raised Roman Catholic, but he came here for the Alpha Course. Everyone knew him. He was a very friendly person, always had treats for dogs walking along the street. He closed his store about two or three years ago, but it was an anchor at this particular end of it. Another place that was just at the south end of uh, uh, Kingswood Road was a restaurant called Spiaggia. Uh, a very, very good restaurant. The Wright Sisters Real Estate is now located in the building. But uh, Spiaggia was, uh, was a wonderful local eatery. So those are some of the anchor spots uh, for me in this particular area. 
you go down Queen Street now and it's vacancy after after vacancy after yeah. vacancy. What do, you, what do you think is really going on? Uh, I, well, there's several things. It has to do with real estate and real estate pricing, but it also has to do with bylaws that allow people to forego taxes if they leave the, va the building vacant and they're not uh, they're not earning income from it. So I think uh, I think that some of it is they jack up they jack up rent. They don't have to maintain the places, but they don't have to pay taxes on them either. So there's some structural and economic issues that are going on in addition to uh, the fact that this is a very desirable area for people to locate. And I think people are counting on someone will eventually want to come in here and buy them out either to create condominia or to, to develop a, a much higher end uh, retail marketplace. Uh, you, uh, you're also uh, an avid runner. <laughs> you're you're out every day, pretty much, right? Yeah, you flatter me. Uh, I uh, I waddle up and down the boardwalk. <laughs> I uh, I used to be fast uh, about forty or forty five years ago. I, when did you first take up running? Uh, in my in my twenties, I used to play football, and I separated my shoulder in the second year of football, just at the end of training camp. So to stay in shape, I ran, and uh, I ran with the Guelph Griffins, that included a couple people who ultimately ran in the 1976 Olympics. Um, by the time my shoulder healed, the season was just about over, and I'd lost my place on the roster. So I continued running, and. Um, so that, uh, that happened in the uh, late 60s, and uh, I've just continued to, to do that. Um, do you have, a, do you have a, a regular route that you, that you take every day, or, or do you mix it up? Oh, I mix it up, but uh, I, generally speaking, I run the boardwalk, um, and then sometimes the loop around Ashbridge's Bay. Uh, when I when I travel, I always take running gear with me, and I tour whatever place I'm, I'm in. Uh, my son lives in Manhattan, not far from Central Park, and whenever I go to uh, New York, which I'm going to do next week, I uh, I always uh, run Central Park. I've seen um, Bill Rogers and Frank Shorter. Uh, these are uh, these are legendary names in marathoning. Uh, Bill, Roger, uh, Bill Rogers won the New York City Marathon three or four times in a row, as, uh, and Frank Shorter won the uh, uh, Munich Marathon, uh, first American to do so in 1972. So, but I've uh, seen them and run with them. One of the things that happened for me that was very fortunate is as I got to know a number of uh, Olympic, Olympic runners, uh, I would go out and train with them. So uh, when I ultimately finished graduate school in uh, 1975, uh, I, uh, I had done some graduate work at, uh, at Laval, so I spoke French as well as uh, had a business background. I'd done writing for uh, student newspapers, and uh, because I trained with uh, some of the Olympians, I was uh, asked by the Financial Post to cover the Olympics from a business perspective. 
So uh, that's what I did for uh, my first job coming out of uh, graduate school. Hmm. It was a lot of fun. Would you say that running uh, is a spiritual exercise? Absolutely. Um, How so? Part of it, uh, there are several dimensions to it. Uh, one is, at this point, I virtually always begin my runs with a hymn. I find that the rhythm of running, uh, I can match that with uh, a hymn or some of the songs uh, that we sing at the, for the children's program. Uh, the other aspect of it is, um, physiologically, it may simply open the mind uh, and the flow of oxygen. Uh, uh, comes to me as inspiration. Sometimes if I'm thinking about a passage in scripture that seems very prosaic, if I go for a run and I'm thinking about this passage, Every now and then, uh, or I, I won't say every now and then, frequently, I find some insights uh, and I see a new dimension of the scripture passage that uh, I come back and make a note of, uh, sometimes in my weekly commentaries and sometimes just personally. So yeah, it's a, it's a very spiritual activity for me. Mm -hmm. uh, on other occasions, I've gone out running when I've been very angry and upset with people and I find that I that the act, activity of running drains off the emotion and allows me to uh, think through what I want to achieve in my relationship with the person and in fact uh, respond in a way that is much more creative and positive than my emotional reaction would have been. You're a, you're a family man. You, you live with your wife, Mary, yeah. um, not too far from the church here. And you've got how many kids? I've got four kids. Four kids? And four grandkids. Yeah. Tell us about, about that. What's... Uh... So my... Um, so quite, a, quite an interesting collection. So my daughter, uh, Megan, is uh, 44. And uh, she has two children, Turner and Alexander, who are here and who participated also in my ordination. Um, uh, Turner's 15, Alexander's uh, 13. Uh, Megan left her husband and uh, last summer married a woman that she met in, uh, in the course of her work as a Crown Counsel. Uh, the woman is a police officer in the uh, Metro Police, so they got married in uh, uh, New Orleans in July, of all times. Um, uh, she lives in Cabbage Town. I see them frequently and really in enjoy their company. Had the, took the kids to the um, Canada versus Mexico soccer game on Sunday. It's the tune-up for the Women's World Cup. Nice. I have a son, Matt, who works in Manhattan. Um, he and his wife uh, met in, uh, at Columbia in journalism school in, the, uh, in about 2005 and got married, uh, got married in 2005. Uh, they have two kids. Uh, he's very successful, works at a high-pressure job, but uh, 
is a partner in a web development firm uh, representing a large number of multinational companies. Uh, my daughter Erin, uh, so Erin is Mary's daughter. Uh, she, yeah. uh, she's a professor at uh, Princeton and uh, her husband continues to live here on Scarborough Road so they have a long-distance commute uh, back and forth. Uh, they have no children but they have a dog named Pax um, and uh, we refer to him as the grand dog. Uh, and then I have a, a son whom I adopted when he was about uh, 19 months old who, uh, as he grew up, uh, became a schizophrenic and a drug abuser. So he lives in a halfway house in uh, Edmonton. So. It's a, in some ways a very complicated set of dynamics yeah. in your, yeah. when your kids. Yeah. yeah. Keeps me alert. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned adoption. I mean, that's something that's close to home for me. My, my daughter, we, we adopted her uh, almost three years ago. Um, and I, I'm assuming marriage equality is something that, that uh, is, a, is a big issue for you as well. Uh, and the Anglican Church, as we all know, is wrestling with uh, altering its, its definition of, its official definition of marriage. Yes. In its canons. What are, you, what are your thoughts about that? I'll go back to one of my earlier statements of an awful lot of, uh, of my personal theology and my, my belief system is shaped by my relationships. So before my daughter met and, uh, and married her, her wife, uh, I had uh, worked in public relations and a number of my clients were lesbian. And uh, I came to see and understand that they had uh, very loving, caring relationships that were mutually supportive. Uh, they were generous and outgoing in their perspective, both individually but also as, as couples. And uh, I came to appreciate that, um, that they were living in the spirit of the gospel, which is love, uh, completely, and that for me to make a judgment on their particular relationship wasn't going to be, wasn't my particular place. So I would say that my theology is very much shaped by the relationships as I observe them. I just wonder if this is a... a a headline grabber for, for the average person out on the street who has really no association with the with the church. I mean, is this is this really a big deal? We've uh, you know as a as a country, we've we've been comfortable with with gay marriage for for a number of years now, and and uh, here here's the Anglican Church all tied up in a knot about this, and I think for a lot of people. Uh, who, who hear of this, it's just like, get on with it. Like, I agree. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, for many people, it would be a reason to dismiss the relevancy of the church, uh, that it's, uh, it is not part of, of a contemporary culture. Now, we come at it from a theological point of view, not just a cultural yeah. point of view. Yeah. But from their perspective, I can see that, uh, you know, 
the church would represent some kind of, uh, of a throwback to uh, a different kind of culture that doesn't exist anymore. How do you see scenes here in the beach as perhaps representing something different than the stereotype that a lot of people might be holding with respect to church in general? Well, I take a look at uh, I take a look at many different dimensions. One is we're we're a growing and thriving community just in terms of numbers uh, and in terms of the financial stability that the place has. Those are that's a that's a quantitative point of view. I have been impressed over the course of the years. Uh, working in things like uh, the Beach Cares, which is our Syrian refugee sponsorship, um, at the number of people within this community who have stepped forward to contribute uh, time and money and effort. Uh, if I look at things like uh, the Out of the Cold or the breakfast programs that we, that we go to, the people who come down to support them, the Thursday lunch programs, that are very well supported by this, this parish community. There's a lot going on. This is not just a Sunday-only church, but it's a community that is living and dynamic throughout the week. Um, uh, things that happen even spontaneously. Um, we have, uh, we open the doors on Wednesday mornings during the winter months to children to come in and play with their nannies. Uh, it happened just because it was uh, a wet, cold day and there was no place for the people to go. They usually, often nannies in the neighborhood take their kids down to the lake and walk them. Uh, but this particular day there was, there was no place and so the doors were just opened and uh, some of them were invited in. And what I refer to as the International Nanny Underground. Uh, use the word to get around very quickly and soon we had a, a church basement full of kids and uh, Lucy went down and with finger pockets would tell stories, mini Bible stories from the gospel and uh, using the finger puppets and play a little bit of music and the kids came to love it. Uh, I think that that kind of being open to the movement of the spirit and the circumstances is something that marked St. Aidan's. I find such joy in coming here and the people who are here and the, the, the relationships that I have with people here, whether it's, I enjoy the people who play the music. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we didn't, we didn't talk about that. You're, you're a musician. So, you know, routinely well, on, on Sunday, you're, you're up there. I get to play with musicians uh, yeah. and, uh, and I get to uh, offer the backyard uh, every year to, uh, to have people from the parish and people from my neighborhood come in and hear the kind of music that we can play. Uh, and again, we've done fundraisers, we've done stuff it out of the cold and we're pretty good. Uh, I'd like to think so. Yeah, I'd like to think so. <laughs> so uh, some promoters have come to me, or a promoter has come to me after hearing us and uh, encouraged us to consider uh, 
touring around a bit into various bars and pubs and I said no we do it for fun but it's a sign that we're, we're considered to be that good <laughs> and uh, but it's it's fun there's joy in coming here and there's joy in the people I love seeing the young families here um, I, I, I love that this is a very caring place we have people who suffer tragedies, uh, either medical situations or the loss of loved ones here. And this parish is so responsive and so caring and reaches out to people in ways that are very personal. So there are women who knit and who knit spectacularly who do prayer shawls and contribute yep. those kinds of things to others. It's a, it's a personal gift, it's something that they do. Uh, it's something that is, uh, is a physical blessing that they can offer others. And it, it's been going on for a long period of time. It's, uh, and it's one of those things that happens. It doesn't have a high degree of visibility, but it happens constantly in this place. It's a good place. It's a it's a happy place to be. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. We've talked for uh, about an hour. Almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We fit a lot in. So thank you. Thank you for sitting down. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Thanks. It's flattering to be asked. Right. Well, there you have it. The very first episode of Boardwalk Talk. For more information about St. Aidan's Anglican Church, you can go to www dot st aidens in the beach dot com that's www dot st a i d a n s in the beach dot com special thanks to samantha beddington and chris schreier for editing and production and to my good friend michael iafrate of west virginia who is featured in the opening music we go out with the same track we open with this is a Fall Headlong by M. Iafrate and the Priesthood from their 2017 album, Christian Burial. I'm Jeff Nowers. Thanks for being part of Boardwalk Talk. A delicate fall A fall headlong We brush them off a delicate fall I fall headlong Our brains open Our brains open Our brains open Our brains open